Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine has entered its second week and an even bloodier phase. His rockets are falling indiscriminately across Ukrainian cities, and Kherson, a strategic port on the Black Sea, has been captured by Russian troops. In the face of intense fire, the Ukrainian resistance has held together, and President Volodymyr Zelensky continues to rally his people. Ukraine should not be but even as Western military aid pours in and sanctions throttle the Russian economy, this is a David and Goliath fight. And all the world's eyes are on the giant in the Kremlin. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what will Vladimir Putin do next? Later in the show, I'll be speaking to Fiona Hill, a leading Russia expert. She's advised both Democrat and Republican presidents on how to understand the psyche of Moscow's strongman. But my first guest is General Sinek Carter, until recently the chief of the British Defence Staff. He's also overseen military exercises predicated on events something like the present conflict, and he sat around the NATO top table. General Sir Nick Carter, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks, Anne. It's very good to be with you. Now, when you left your position as Chief of the Defence Staff here in Britain, you warned that Russia was a bigger threat in Eastern Europe than before, and the UK should be ready for war. That does look prescient. But is what is happening in Ukraine now playing out as you would have expected when you made that prediction? I think it's been very difficult to forecast any of this. And I think a lot of people, of course, myself included, hoped that President Putin would step back from doing what he's actually done. But of course, by arraying 150,000 or so troops on Ukraine's border, there is a sort of awful inevitability that the momentum of being deployed like that leads to what has now happened. And the invasion began a week ago, and as we're talking today, the key port city of Kherson in the south has been seized by Russian forces, Kyiv and Kharkiv also heavily under assault. What are Russia's tactics here? Well, I think that's a really interesting question, and I guess Putin is keen to try and impose a puppet government in Ukraine, which will be oriented clearly towards Russia. That must be his maximalist objective, but it may be that he's got minimalist objectives. And I suspect one of those is likely to be to try and connect Crimea properly to Russia. And therefore, what he can do down on the coast around Mariupol and in the areas that you've just been talking about to try and force that link up is probably one of his minimalist objectives. But of course, Kyiv is the centre of gravity, not least because if you're going to put a puppet regime in, you need to remove President Zelensky and everything that he stands for. And therefore, investing in Kyiv is going to be a key objective, I would have thought. Just a word on President Zelensky. He's obviously been very brave. He's rallied his people. He's rallied international 
opinion, what do you think is likely to befall him if the Russians take Kiev? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, fingers crossed that he survives, but um, he's undoubtedly going to become a martyr for his people, whichever way this materialises now, I would suggest. And he's been absolutely phenomenal in raising national morale and giving his people a cause to fight for. Just to be clear, you do believe his life is directly in danger? I don't know. But I mean, we've heard reports that um, mercenaries from the Wagner Group are, are hunting him down. And my guess is, of course, it would be convenient for the Russians rather for Mr Putin to see Zelensky removed. Now, there are reports that the Russian army is being stalled in some areas, uh, including that convoy heading to Kiev. A lot of leaders saying, perhaps a bit hopefully, that Russia has miscalculated Ukrainian resistance. Do you think Russian strategy has gone wrong, or is it simply going cross-fingers that this continues to be the case? But is it really going wrong? Is it just going slowly? First and foremost, I think that the political objectives, which uh, we assume President Putin is pushing for, cannot be translated into meaningful military objectives. So at the strategic level, um, he's going to lose whichever way this goes, and we can perhaps come back to that. But yes, I mean, I think that their military operation, as he called it, their special military operation, has been mounted on rather flawed assumptions. There was an expectation that the Ukrainian people would simply roll over and welcome Russian peacekeepers, inverted commas, uh, into their country. And of course, um, that's proven to be faulty. And if you start an operation on flawed assumptions, inevitably, your planning is inadequate, uh, your command and control won't work, your logistics will be limited. And of course, what we're seeing is that their tactics have also been distinctly limited. And that's why they've taken a bloody nose so far. And what about morale? Because there's a Pentagon intelligence report that claims there is low morale among Russian troops. How would you assess what impact it would have on events on the ground if this report is reflecting something more broad than just a few people being malcontent? Yes, I mean, we, we military people talk about measuring uh, military effectiveness on the basis of the components of fighting power. Fighting power is made up of a conceptual component, a physical component and a moral component. And if the moral component is absent, the reality is that armies won't fight. And I think what is probably playing out here, and you know, we'll need to digest the evidence as it comes in, but this report is probably right in suggesting that most of those Russians on the battlefield thought that they were either not going to have to fight because the Ukrainians would be pleased to see them, or that they weren't going to have to fight their cousins in Slavic terms. And the upshot of that is that when Ukrainian civilians appear in front of them, it's quite obvious that most of them don't seem to want to kill Ukrainian civilians. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't use artillery and long-range weapon systems. But no, I think having to fight people who they might regard as brothers and sisters, I think, will be very challenging for them. And as Russian troops approach Kiev and the sieges in Kharkiv and Kherson are underway, the conflict does look to be turning more urban, more into street warfare. What can we expect from a Russian urban operation? Uh, I happen to know, because actually you've been a guest on this show before, discussing the future, as it was then, of urban warfare. Uh, it looks like we may have a real-life example that's uh, spreading across Ukraine. Yes, I mean, the answer is it's particularly bloody. And of course, the tragedy is that Russia has overwhelming artillery fire and support and missile systems. And, you know, I suspect they will rubbalize the cities that they choose to attack. And I fear Kiev would be an obvious target in this. But of course, what um, history has also proved, and we've seen this throughout, is that once you rubbleize a city, it becomes much harder to take it because ultimately the nature of war doesn't change. You have to go close and personal to winkle your enemies out of buildings. And that's really difficult if you've trashed a place with artillery. So it becomes a very bloody affair. And the proportion of 
attackers to defenders needs to be much higher than it would do in open terrain, you know, where in open terrain, it's sort of three to one is generally regarded as being the proportion you need to win. In urban domains, it can be as much as six to one. And if Russia does manage to occupy Ukraine, is your prediction that we will see insurgency and that is the next sort of stage, isn't it, of this situation that you describe around urban warfare? It is even with that massive push that it would take for the Russian side to take control, that wouldn't be the end of it. No, and I, and I think, you know, however things turn out now, I think it's it's pretty clear that Mr Putin can't win. I mean, no puppet or Russian-backed government would ever have the legitimacy to be able to rule Ukraine, not least with the Ukrainian people, but of course internationally. He cannot afford, I think, to occupy Ukraine indefinitely. It'll become a quagmire and there will be resistance and a guerrilla campaign, which I'm absolutely certain that we will help those Ukrainians who wish to carry on fight, will help them fight. He, of course, has significantly strengthened NATO. And of course, um, he's going to be internationally isolated. What about legal instruments here? And I'm thinking, looking back to my experience in the former Yugoslavia, and I think and you would have been involved, of course, with uh, what was happening with the, the British military and the international effort, which sort of finally got at least somewhere there. One of the, the things that came out of that was the role of the International Criminal Court. And the chief prosecutor, Karim Khan, has said that he is launching an investigation into possible war crimes in Ukraine after Russia was accused of bombing civilians. Would you characterise what you're seeing happen as a war crime? I mean, I think if civilians are intentionally targeted, then the answer is, of course, it's a war crime. All of this really hinges on on intention. Um, And I think, you know, if intention can be proved, then, of course, they are guilty of war crimes. Let's look at the West's strategic aims. What do you think we should be aiming for? I mean, what is a reasonable strategic aim here, as opposed to what most people listening, watching, would just want this to stop and they'd like to see Vladimir Putin's aggression defeated. But uh, tell me practically what you think we should be aiming for. Well, I think there's a really interesting question that you style, as it were, the opposition as the West. I actually think that's not necessarily the best way to think about who's on our bench, uh, because I think there are many other countries who feel that this is um, behaviour that is, you know, outside international laws and rules. But I think in terms of the objectives, you know, first and foremost, it's got to be to contain this war and for, to prevent it spreading it's got to be about trying to protect the Ukrainian people in a, if, if one can thereafter. And then, of course, I think it's about trying to redress the balance of how these rules have been broken to try and get that back in a box. And I think that there will be some big deductions that we all draw from this. I mean, I wonder whether there will be questions asked about whether this is another nail in the coffin of globalization, you know, whether we're heading much more towards regionalization. There are all sorts of things to think about in relation to this, but I think we should be clear that this is going to be a significant shock. And that significant shock is going to um, lead to, I think, all manner of things that we might not have expected even two weeks ago. President Zelensky's called for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. NATO's rejected that plea and said it would amount to a declaration of war against Russia. In that case, wonder, do you agree with that? And if not, what is the best way to combat air superiority if you cannot control the skies? First and foremost, Russia has a preponderance of artillery anyway, so it doesn't necessarily at this stage, given the weakness of the Ukrainian Air Force, need air power to be able to achieve its ends, I suspect. Secondly, of course, if you do try and enforce a no-fly zone, you've got to be prepared to enforce it, and that means you've obviously got to be prepared to shoot down the enemy's aeroplanes. And if you do do that, that is an act of war. And I think it would be extremely difficult to contain that to Ukrainian airspace. And as I said a moment ago, we need to be able to contain this. And if you allow it to spread, then 
goodness knows where it will end. And I think the best way to deal with this, if we can, is to continue to supply Ukrainians with air defence systems, to continue to supply them with drones, which are able to be able to attack some of the massed Russian equipment that you see on, on columns coming down towards Kiev or whatever else it might be. But the answer, I think, is not to deploy NATO air into Ukrainian airspace. That would be a very dangerous step. Is it your assessment that military aid is getting through quickly enough? Uh, we heard the Ukrainian ambassador to the US saying the army's close to running out of Stinger and Javelin missiles. That's the Ukrainian army. It is late in the day to be pushing arms into a conflict zone, isn't it? Yeah, but I think this thing's going to play out for a long time. I, mean, I don't think we're going to see this thing end anytime soon. The straight answer is I don't know how quickly it's getting through to where it needs to get to. But uh, I have to keep doing that. And the fact that I think over 20 nations have now stepped up to the plate to provide support and arms and ammunition and so on and so forth is, is a really good statement of intent. You've overseen exercises in the Baltic states, worked with NATO partners on that. We heard Kaya Kallas, the Estonian prime minister, saying that NATO needed to bolster its presence and its defence in the Baltic states. She clearly feels that this is not good enough. What is your assessment of the security of the Baltic states? Well, I mean, I think one has to look at the threat. And of course, at the moment, much of Putin's army is committed to the fight in Ukraine. You know, he's had to redeploy troops and material from the northwest, so from the borders of the Baltic states, and he's had to deploy it from the east as well. So I think at the moment, you know, I would regard the threat to the Baltic states as perhaps being not as great as it could be. Now, that means there's time. And I think that, you know, what's really needed now is for us to stand back in terms of our NATO strategy, to think for the long term. It's got to be to really point out the inviability of the Article 5 commitment. Attack on one is an attack on them all, to really demonstrate our unity. It's about, frankly, providing reassurance and deterrence to those countries like the Baltic states and to Poland, Romania, those countries who are now bordering Russia, that we are there for them. But the Baltics will be challenging to defend. I mean, Kaliningrad, that little segment of land that sits between Lithuania and Poland, is, of course, now very much a, a Russian military base. He deployed Iskander missiles there not long ago. And the answer is that is a way of denying us the ability to reinforce the Baltic states. So, you know, one has to think quite hard about that if one feels that the threat is significant towards the Baltic states. The big question mark is surely over NATO expansion. And we perhaps should just deal first with the point of criticism, including from people who have great sympathy with what is happening on the ground, that this is in some way the fault of NATO's expansion into the former Soviet sphere. Your, your thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, I think people have probably um, been listening to too much Russian propaganda on this. I mean, if you go back to the history from 91 onwards, I mean, there was, a, there was an agreement, wasn't there, between James Baker, the then Secretary of State of the United States, and Gorbachev, that NATO would not expand beyond Eastern Germany. But of course, that was a, a deal that was struck around German reunification. You know, the Soviet Union then subsequently collapsed. So I don't think one can think of that as a deal. We have to remember the 1994 Budapest Agreement, which, of course, people signed up to the integrity of Ukraine's borders on the basis that Ukraine would get rid of their nuclear weapons. And, of course, it's been convenient for Russia to forget that. And then the other thing I think one needs to remember is that NATO doesn't invite people to join. People ask to join NATO. And, of course, what then took place towards the end of the 1990s is that Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic asked to join and of course, one also needs to go back to, you know, what Putin has said in the past. And it was a very good article that Lord, Lord Robertson, George Robertson, former NATO Secretary General, he was Secretary General between 99 and 2002 or three, uh, in which he says, let me remind you what President Putin said in May 2002, standing beside me in Rome at the NATO-Russia summit. 
Russia has always had a crucial role in world affairs. The problem for our country has been, however, that over a long period of time, a situation arose in which Russia was on one side and the other side was the rest of the world. Nothing good came of that confrontation between us and the rest of the world. And it's rather ironic that here we are 20 years on, and as George Robertson observes, it was true then, it's even more true today. What about Ukraine? Because I was in Germany a couple of weeks ago. Chancellor Schultz was on that last round of diplomacy. He stood alongside Vladimir Putin in Moscow, and he said, well, we don't expect Ukraine to be joining NATO. He said to uh, Putin as a bit of a jibe, really. Either, you know, well, either of us is in office, of course, one never knows how long that's going to be with uh, President Putin. But it almost seemed that there was a reassurance that Ukraine wouldn't join. Has that changed materially because of the war? I'm not sure it has. First of all, you know, that it's necessary for Ukraine to meet certain criteria in order to have become a member of NATO even before any of this happened. And they were on the path to some of that, but they still had some things to achieve, you'll recall. So no, I don't know. I, I think that what's changed is there's a great deal more sympathy for Ukraine now. But I also think that going back to my point about solving this needs to think for the long term, I think we need to reflect really hard on what sort of relationship we're going to have with Russia in the future. I say Russia rather than Mr. Putin. And I think that is something that needs a lot more thought so that we don't end up creating the circumstances where we have a new iron curtain descending in Europe. I just get your closing thoughts on where this leaves geopolitics and the military component around that. But just before that, Finland, Sweden, these countries, I suppose, are suddenly finding themselves, the countries who aren't NATO members, the first time both are sending military equipment to Ukraine. Both of them have partnerships with NATO, but politically and in terms of what their populations have wanted, they haven't been very attracted to it. Do you think that has changed? Yes, I do. I mean, I think um, there was a recent poll, wasn't there, in Finland that suggested that more than 50% of the population was attracted to NATO membership. And of course, Sweden agreed to send weapons to Ukraine, which of course um, is contrary to its policy of neutrality since 1939. So yeah, I mean, I think it has changed. And there has always been a relationship between Finland and Russia. And I wonder how that goes forwards. It's the same point in a sense as other neighbours joining NATO in relation to Russia. It does feel like a watershed moment. But how do you think the war will reshape European transatlantic security over the coming years? Well, I mean, I think it's woken everybody up to um, the fact that, sadly, war in Europe is now again possible. And that, of course, I think means that European governments are more likely to spend money on defence than they might have done before, as we saw with Germany's announcement last Monday. And, of course, what we're also seeing is much greater unity, I think, in terms of a view across Europe and, of course, uh, across the North Atlantic area and perhaps broader than that as well. But of course, it's going to be difficult for all of us. I mean, you know, whether it's sanctions or having to spend more on defence, you know, they're two-edged swords because the compromise has to come from anywhere else if you're going to do that. So, um, you know, we need to get used to where's the, where's the money going to come from to do all of this. And that'll be a challenge for governments. And it's going to be a challenge for populations. And the fact that populations are going to have to make a sacrifice is going to require significant leadership in the West. General Sinek Carter, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. A pleasure, Anne. Thank you. One man is driving this urgent and far-reaching reappraisal of the West's responses to Russia and the least worst-case outcomes for Ukraine, with reverberations all around the world. And that man is Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, the Kremlin leader who unleashed this war. Assessing the motivations and the weak points of an enemy who's closeted himself far from public view is a hard task. But Fiona Hill, my next guest, has built a career as a Putin watcher, 
for two decades. And as the top advisor on the National Security Council, she analysed Russia and its threat for the White House in the Trump presidency. Fiona Hill, thanks for joining me on The Economist Asks. Thank you so much, Anne. I think many people are surprised watching the images of Russian rockets and artillery raining down on Ukraine. Even now, you've always warned us not to underestimate Vladimir Putin. But are you too surprised that this attack on Ukraine has come with the ferocity that it has? Like everybody else, I'm shocked because of the scale of this and the horror that's being inflicted upon the Ukrainian people and also Russian soldiers, a lot of whom seem to be conscripts. But I'm not surprised because unfortunately there's been a very long prelude to all of this. Putin has been signalling for an extraordinary period of time now that if push came to shove, he would do something on this kind of scale. And I think the people who didn't want to see it were really experiencing either a failure of imagination denial or false hope that something wasn't going to happen. For many analysts as well, it was hard to fathom that he would really go as far as it was clear he'd set himself up to because people would say, well, surely, you know, he might step somewhat short of that. But we would still have been in a very difficult position had he not done the full force of invasion. Look, this is on him. This is his decision. So that's what I wanted to to come to, which is what you think is fundamentally driving him in this campaign against Ukraine in the form that it's now taken. He had choices which would have been very unpleasant, but this is all-out war. So what do you think is driving him and how far do you think he's prepared to go? Well, look, I think things have shifted. You know, first of all, he was trying to use coercive diplomacy, if you could call it diplomacy, but let's say pressure, uh, taking Ukraine hostage by encircling it and putting an awful lot of pressure on Ukraine in various different ways to have it uh, renounce its aspirations for further association, not just with NATO, but with Europe. Then he's moved to tightening that noose even further with all of this demonstrations of strength and power and resolve. And initially, I think he probably thought that as he moved in with this invasionary force, and I think he really thought that things would turn around as soon as he demonstrated that he was going to do something in you know, a matter of maybe 24, 48 hours, and it absolutely hasn't. So I think he's gone to punishment now. And this has tipped him into a different threshold. I think he thinks at this point now, if he can't get Ukraine, he's pretty much going to destroy it. Take us inside the Kremlin under Putin as, as far as you're able. It was, of course, a subject of a book you, you wrote many years ago about Mr Putin and his methods. How much can expert Russia watchers like yourself, who have followed Putin for many years, how much do you now get to glean at all about the mood there, the circle around him? I think what we have to do now is just to base it on what we've known, as you said, for the last 22 years. I mean, he is a known quantity. We've all been observing him for quite some period of time. The whole world has. It's clear at this point, and you've seen all of the images, everyone's seen the images that have become even memes on the internet about Putin meeting with everyone from President Macron of France at this giant, huge white table, you know, miles away from each other, to Putin meeting with members of his inner circle in similar rooms at the ends of great big long tables, making it very clear that this is a guy who's isolated, who's making a lot of decisions himself, and is only meeting on very highly orchestrated and highly controlled circumstances with people. So that suggests there's not a lot of information that's penetrating. We know that his inner circle has narrowed down to all of the hard security guys. It's not like oligarchs are on the phone to him all the time. 
you are a former national intelligence officer. You do have to make some judgments on very imperfect material. So, you know, if you have a hunch about the way that he's changed, what is it and how do you see that relationship with the elites having changed? Any signs that it's more fraught than it was? I think it is more fraught with the elites outside of the inner circle of the Kremlin. And the inner circle now is very clearly the people that we see most closely around him, the intelligence people, the security representatives, uh, the military, occasionally uh, Lavrov from uh, the foreign ministry. We get the impression that he's been brought the kind of information that he seeks because any messenger bringing bad information would certainly be facing the shoot the messenger principle. He's living in a propaganda bubble devised by the Kremlin and the Kremlin's own uh, media operations. I doubt greatly that he's sitting around watching the BBC or CNN, and if he did, he would assume that this is also propaganda from the West. The assessment would be that we're in a very precarious and dangerous situation because Putin may be operating on pretty faulty information, and he's clearly doubled down. Every setback has basically led to him, push as far as he possibly can in Ukraine. He is now conducting this campaign with the aim of getting us to take an off-ramp, us to capitulate and us to surrender because he is now intent on destroying, carving up and subjugating Ukraine. And what is the likelihood of a palace coup occurring as the inner circle becomes smaller, tighter, but arguably they are going to face frustration at what is happening in Ukraine themselves and the economic situation and pressures in Russia at home. I think both of us and our different ways of looking at and covering Russia came up in the days when coup against Gorbachev was the way it was supposed to be the end of, of Gorbachev. It is a way in which matters are sometimes resolved and Yeltsin wasn't uh, far short of being one. So do you think that is a way that this could end? If it is a coup, it's more likely to be by the hardliners. That is exactly what happened to Gorbachev in 1991 when he was trying to loosen things up in the Soviet Union and the hardliners around him didn't want that to happen. The people around Putin in that inner circle that I've referenced, the security guys, they're pretty hardline. They will not want to loosen up anything or reverse course. They'll want to double down and triple down because they're all in it together with Putin. They're just as complicit as he is Obviously, they didn't push back if they had any difference of opinion. Probably some of them might have thought he should have been prosecuting it harder instead of you know, sending in you know, more aviation. They obviously were trying, in the case of Ukraine, to minimise casualties under the pretext that they've gone in there, that Ukrainians are Russians and that you know, they're liberating them from some evil overlordship by the Ukrainian government or NATO or the United States. So the idea of a coup coming from some other angle is very hard to fathom. It seems more like if they have a loss in the war, that then there might be some change. I mean, I think our best hope, uh, which is not a particularly uplifting one, is really to get China and other countries that have so far abstained or pulled back from interference here, you know, to try to find ways of pushing the Russians into a different direction, finding that idea of uh, the golden bridge that Sun Tzu had, the art of war for your enemy. Could we get others to help with this? Because Putin is not going to want to be seen to have lost and neither are the people around him. What does a more dangerous, more ruthless Vladimir Putin mean for Russia? It's been in a very authoritarian phase now for a long time. It does feel that it is tipping into something closer to dictatorship, or would you cavil at that description? 
No, I think that's where they're headed. They're talking about martial law, all kinds of curtailing of information. They've already made it illegal to talk about this as a war. It's still the special military operation. They've started detaining and picking up protesters, including elderly ladies who've survived the siege of Leningrad during World War II, which is exactly what happened to Putin's own family. Yet he's laying siege to other cities that were trying to withstand Nazi Germany in World War II as well. I mean, there's an awful lot of people responding to this, not just around the world and especially in Europe, but also in Russia itself, those who are getting information. But there's an information blackout. There's a blackout about the number of soldiers who have died. Some of the Ukrainian figures, which, of course, we have to take with caution because, you know, how are they counting this? You know, do we really know? Have talked of upwards toward 10,000 Russian soldiers killed and bodies being left there in the battlefield. People at home in Russia don't know that. So what he's going to be worried about here, Anne, is protest. So this is a sign of great weakness. I'm very wary myself of an overly hopeful narrative, but just a a word on this, if you could. Anti-war sentiment, protest. I remember an oligarch uh, close to Putin at at the time, Deripaska, saying to me, like, who went out on the street in 2012 at the last signs of protest for Putin? He seemed to be sceptical that in the end the streets would back Putin if protests ever really took off. What do you make of that? Well, if you look at people who've been in power for as long as Putin has, you know, 22 years now, the chances of him going in an election are pretty slim. The chances are more like he gets toppled by a protest because that's a pattern that you see on a more global scale with such longevity of leaders. He dies in office. Or that there's some kind of, as you were suggesting before, some kind of palace coup, but it won't be like the Conservative Party turning on Margaret Thatcher. Obviously, it'll be something quite different. Putin is very well aware of all these things. He's trying to head them off. So that gets to your point about more of a a dictatorship, a clampdown. I mean, the fact that they're rolling up old ladies and, you know, all kind of protesters, children, others, they did that after Putin returned to power in 2011, 2012, when exactly as you said, there were loads of protests on the street. He is paranoid about protests. And look what nearly happened to Lukashenko next door in Belarus. He almost got toppled by protests. So you have a protest now where people are suddenly realising not only they're clabbering all of their cousins in Kiev and maybe their even their brothers and husbands and wives' families, and they are also killing Russian soldiers, young soldiers, because that's the message that's coming out of Kiev. And if that starts to penetrate, you know, we might well see the kinds of protests that Putin really fears on the streets, not just of Moscow and St. Petersburg, but across the country. Let's look at the West's response and what impact that is is having or not having. It does challenge a lot of the the things that Putin has been trying to achieve in in recent years, notably dividing uh, the Western alliance. In fact, it's strengthened NATO. NATO has come together in this moment. Perhaps, I have to say, rather, I was a bit more pessimistic uh, at the outset of this, but it, it has. It's brought unity in the EU, which was also becoming rather vociferous on the the Russian question. So does this all just serve to deepen a sense of Western encirclement? They're ganging up on Russia, or does it actually cause him real pain? Well, those two things can come together, right? The pain that will be felt and is being felt by ordinary Russians, but it will absolutely feed into the sense of encirclement because Putin and the people around him don't believe for one second that anything that ever happens is their fault. It is always blamed on the West. You know, we have a tendency also to blame all kinds of things on Russia's, but not to the extent that they absolutely do. 
basically any uprising, any protest, socioeconomic or localised, somehow has to have the hand of the West in it, CIA and everything. That's exactly what they tell themselves all the time. Is there then a trade-off for those of us who are some of you said like, rather hawkishly inclined towards Russia, that perhaps we need to be thoughtful about the trade-off of isolating Russia, which is the direction of uh, a lot of activity at the moment, uh, and deepening that sense in those who might otherwise peel away from Putin. And I, I wonder you know, where you stand on that, because you came up really at a time of engagement with Russia. We have to figure out what channels we've got, right? We've got through the United Nations... And uh, obviously the General Assembly, there's all kinds of countries there that have either sat on the fence about this or basically have reasonably good relations with the Russians or had up until this point, not just China, but others, you know, to try to press the Russians behind the scenes. If they can get in touch with the Russian government, it's no good just sending you know, the French and the Germans and Europeans here. We have to figure out what other channels we've got through uh, military channels still to try to engage with them. I mean, we have to try to get a ceasefire and to try to halt the hostilities. We've got to still make it clear that we're willing to talk about European security and you know, many of the other issues that were put on the table before they inverted. But the main issue is to get them to withdraw, which is going to be extraordinarily difficult. So we absolutely need to have channels here as well. But you know, one of the things that we're going to have to be very careful about too is demonising the Russian public. This is not the Russian public. How do you think history will remember Vladimir Putin. I suppose this is the, the, the time to preempt writing it. Well, now they're going to remember him like Adolf Hitler, yet another dictator of a country that turns things around over a period of time and decides to invade their neighbours under the premise of all kinds of uh, historical delusions. And it's not just historical. I mean, basically, the conjuring up of ethno-nationalism, and he's right up there with certainly Slobodan Milosevic and uh, the Balkans and Adolf Hitler. And again, nobody really wants to make that comparison. I mean, you've studied Germany, you know the, the history very well. And But when you look at what Hitler did with Sudetenland, the Anschluss of Austria, the invasion of Poland. All the... I mean, some people won't like that comparison, will they? And some people will let us know. I just thought I'd, I'd uh, make that point. I'm sure they can. But I would ask them also to just see what Putin has just done in terms of bombing and now indiscriminately civilian targets including Babinyar, which was just finished recently as the big memorial to all of the Jewish victims of the Holocaust in Kiev who were slaughtered by the Nazis. Putin uses World War II analogies to his own benefit. We must not let him. And we have said to ourselves since World War II that we would never let this kind of thing happen again. So just to put it onto the notice for people, you can say you don't like this one little bit, but take a long, hard look at what Vladimir Putin has been saying and what he has been doing. Fiona Hill, thank you very much indeed for joining us and sharing your thoughts. Thanks, Anne. So there are lots to ponder. Do tell us what you think. How will the history books remember Vladimir Putin? And what, if any, off-ramp could stop his campaign in Ukraine? We had a lot of mail on what the best deterrence to more aggression might look like and a very wide range of views. Alaric Van Doon emailed me to say that he thinks economic sanctions will do nothing to deter Putin. But do you agree? Let me know by writing to podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at economistpods. 
Fiona Hill talked about the importance of Russia's relationship with China. And this week, our Chagwin columnist looks at the ties that bind Moscow and Beijing. Don't miss out on reading that article or indeed on any of our coverage and analysis on what's happening in Ukraine. Become an Economist subscriber today. And for your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. And the sound engineer is Timo Seiler. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.